Hey, if you want to grab a Bible, this one right in front of you, you may find it there. Or you can open the Bible. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In the Pew Bible in front of you, it's on page 961. And if you do not have a Bible, the reason we place those there is so that you could take it with you. That's a gift from us to you. If you don't have one, please just take that one with you today. We'd love for you guys to have it. Again, page 961. Uh, the passage we're reading today is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we're going to read verses 1 all the way down to verse 11. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1 through 11. The word of the Lord. And now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received and now in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that He appeared to Cephas and then He appeared to the twelfth, And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle." because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And, and His grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you have believed. The word of the Lord, all thanks be to God. Hey, before we jump in, can I just pray for us? Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for this text that was given to us. I know just 20 years after the resurrection, Paul writes these words, Father, to a church in a city that was a mess, in a world that was broken, and yet in this text we see life, we see light, the story of the resurrection. And Father, I'd ask that you would illuminate our hearts and minds. Would you use this time, Father, to teach us, but also to allow what we receive to lead us to you and to knowing you more, to experiencing you, loving you, and Father, in the end, to allowing our lives to be used for your service. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The text we just read is the oldest New Testament description of what Jesus has done for us and really what the first century church believed. You know, as we gather on Easter, we know that Christians believe many things. The different denominations and different denominations have different disagreements and agreements, and Christianity is known for a lot of good things, but I think we can be honest, we're also known for a lot of broken and bad things. And so on Easter, I think it's real important just to ask the question, what makes us Christian? 
If we could reduce the complexity of Christianity, all the denominations, the different songs and things that we do and the agreements and disagreements and just boil it down to one or two simple truths, what would we say Christianity is really all about? Well, see, that's what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 15. And he's saying to them, remember, I shared the gospel with you. Now realize this text was written just 20 years. You can imagine that. 20 years after an event that was as miraculous as the resurrection. 20 years later, Paul is reminding them of what he shared with them. Which means that after Jesus rose from the dead, Paul came to faith. And not only Paul came to faith, but he took the gospel which Jesus shared with him to this metropolitan city of Corinth, a city that was known for sin and vice, for economic development. It was a a melting pot, and he brought the gospel to Corinth, and many people in Corinth began to believe. They received it. But as they received it, they began to drift away from it. And he says, I want to remind you today simply of what you believed. I want to remind you of what the gospel is. Now, one of my favorite pastors, a man by the name of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was actually a physician in most of his life, but later he uh, became a pastor. He was a British pastor, and uh, he would often ask people this question. He would ask him and say, you know, are you, and he'd say this to people in the church, are you a Christian? And if they said yes, he would say, well, why? Why do you believe that you're a Christian? And he would write that often what people would say is they say, well, I think I'm a Christian. I mean, I'm trying to live by the commandments. I'm trying to love my neighbors myself. I think I'm a Christian. I think I'm doing it right. And Dr. Lloyd-Jones would say when somebody answered like that, he knew that they really hadn't understood the gospel. They hadn't understood what Paul says is of primary, of first importance that they hadn't understood the core of the Christian faith, that the core of Christianity is not just a set of rules or religious duties, but rather at the core of the Christian faith is, as Paul says, the gospel. And so today I want to answer the question, really, what is the gospel? And we're going to discover the gospel is four things. We can summarize it as Paul does in four ways. One, the gospel, first and foremost, is Jesus. That in in the gospel, what we get is not just eternal life in heaven, we get God. And God is the greatest gift, which results in eternal life, but it's the gift of the relationship with God. The gospel is, is Jesus. And then second, the gospel is the story of sin and substitution. That is, as Peter said in his book, Christ died for our sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. The gospel is about sin and substitution. But third, the gospel is also about history and the resurrection. That we have a new hope, a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then finally, the gospel fourth is about transformative grace. A grace that leads us, Not to just, uh, in some ways, to know ourselves better, but to know God and to know the purpose he has for us. So the gospel is about Jesus, sin, substitution, history, resurrection, and finally, transformative grace. So let's jump in. The gospel, first of all, is is about Jesus. Look at this in verse 1. He says, Now I remind you, brothers, 
and sisters. Brothers in that time was a, uh, a term that referred to both brothers and sisters. Of the gospel I preach to you, in which you received, in which you stand, and by which you're being saved. And then he says in verse 3, For I delivered to you of first importance that what I also received. And he says, that Christ. That the rest of this passage explains the meaning of two words. This entire passage explains the meaning of those words, that Christ. You see, the gospel, it begins with Jesus. Now, what is the gospel? And when I say the gospel, I mean, what does the word gospel mean? You know, the word gospel was taken out of the Greek context and Greek culture. It was actually a very technical term. And it was a word that referred to a history-changing event that changed the lives of the people to which it was addressed. The gospel was a history-changing, life-changing event that had implications for your life. And so imagine in the Roman, the Greek Empire, uh, a new king had ascended to the throne. What they would do is they would send out the heralds, the apostles. They would go out and they'd share the gospel. And they would announce to the villagers, to the people, there was a new king on the throne. That was the gospel. Or imagine an army had advanced into your lands and they were defeated. Well, the heralds would go out with the gospel and they'd declare, the army has been defeated. We are liberated. We are free. See, what the gospel is, is not advice about what we should do. The gospel is news about what God himself has done. It's life-altering, history-making news that has implications on our own lives. Now, see, this is what sets Christianity apart. That Jesus did not come to be a great teacher. Now, I know in our culture, in our context, a lot of people see Jesus as a great teacher, and he had a lot of things to say. And yet, Jesus never said, I should be known as a teacher. Rather, he said, I came for a purpose, and that purpose was to seek and to save that which was lost. That Jesus came not to be a great teacher, he said he came to be a savior. And what sets Christianity apart is that the foundation of our faith is not advice. It's not a list of things we've got to do. It's news about what God has done. When you think of some of the religions in the world, like the five pillars of Islam, or the eightfold path of enlightenment in Buddhism, what it's describing is saying essentially these are the things that you need to do in order to know God. The difference in Christianity is it doesn't start like that. It doesn't start with you because the Bible's really not about you. The Bible, first and foremost, is about God, and it's his invitation for us to enter into his story, to allow God's story to become my story as we hear the message, the good news of the gospel, that Jesus Christ lived, died, and rose again, and through that, we can have life with God. And that's why Paul says in the book of Romans that the gospel is the power of God. Not if you realize this, but that's, the gospel is the only thing that is described as the power of God. The mountains are not described as the power of God. Hurricanes and weather is not described as the power of God. What is described as the power of God is the announcement of what Jesus has done. Because when that announcement is made, what happens is it produces faith people respond. They hear the message, 
and they believe, and to be believed, to believe is simply to be convinced by the evidence through the power of the Spirit that this is what God has done for us. That first and foremost, the gospel is about Jesus. Now, second, the gospel, as Paul says here, is about that the fact that Jesus Christ died. And as he says, he died for our sins, in verse 3, in accordance with the Scriptures, meaning according to the prophecy of the Old Testament. I want to encourage you at some point, if you have time today, this week, to read Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53 was written thousand years before the coming of Jesus, but it describes the death, the resurrection, and the accomplishment of what Christ would do for us. That he died for our sin. Now, the story of sin and substitution is at the heart of what Christians believe. But sin's not a very popular word. I mean, I think it's more the butt of jokes than it is the content of actual conversations. So what is sin? One of the challenges is the Bible, Old and New Testament, uses more than one word to describe sin. And so sin is a, a vast and nuanced word. And yet, to, to capture the big picture, think of it this way. If God exists and he's created us, given us our natural abilities, DNA, all that good stuff, the environment in which we live, the country, the place in which we live, if God is the, our creator, given us all things, the implication is we owe him everything. I mean, if God created us, fashioned us, then we owe him everything. And think of the success that maybe you've accomplished in life. You know, often I think we see the success that we've made in life and we say to ourselves, hey, I did it. I made it. I took the resources I had and I, I drove as hard as I could and I accomplished great things. And maybe you have worked hard. But I don't know if you realize it, but the majority of factors that make us successful were actually determined before we were born. Because we didn't determine the parents to which we were born. We didn't determine the economic era in which we lived. We didn't determine that the gifts and the talents, maybe I'm an engineer, maybe I'm analytical, maybe I love math, and math just happens today to make a lot of money. We didn't determine those things or the, the people in which we were surrounded by. Many of the things that made us successful were actually outside of our control. Rather, we used the resources that were given to us to the best of our abilities, and we accomplished great things. And yet, if God has created us, instead of honoring God with the things he's given us, what we've done is simply to, to honor ourselves, to ignore God. And instead of honoring him as God as creator, we honored ourselves. And Jesus says, this is what sin is. And sin is what is wrong with the world. It's what's breaking the world. That instead of glorifying and honoring God, we seek with the things God's given us to honor ourselves. And because of that, he says, it separates us from God. That the implication of sin is both a personal and a legal separation. The implications is both personal and legal. Now, we know that to be true simply when we look at our own relationships. Imagine you have a friend and maybe you grew up together. And maybe she was one of your best friends and you know, you went through high school, college, and then you reconnected later on in life because she and, and you had a, this great idea for a business, and you started this business together, and it flourished. It did very, very well. 
But maybe 15 years into that business, you noted th- noticed that things started to get a little strange in the relationship. She was no longer communicating as she did in the past, and instead, every promise that she made, you found that she started to break, and you could notice that there were lies and deceit that was entering the relationship. Wondering what's going on, but right thinking the best, eventually it comes out that she is embezzling from the company. And because of that, now your reputation is on the line. And potentially your career could be destroyed. Now imagine that all comes out, right? This relationship personal. It's a very personal relationship, but there's also now a legal implication. It comes out and she comes back to you and says, you know, I was such an idiot. I can't believe that I sacrificed our relationship for money. Hey, can't you just forgive me? Don't we say that? Can't God just forgive us? Can't you just forget? Can't we just go back? And listen, in a relationship, even if you wanted to, even if you could forgive the personal side of the relationship, there's still a legal implication. And you can go to the prosecutor and say, hey, I don't want to press charges. The prosecutor say it doesn't matter because, see, a law was breaking, and that law has to be addressed so that that relationship can be restored. The relationship's not just broken personally. See, it's also broken legally. And see, in our relationship with God, the implications are infinitely more. Because we're not describing just a relationship between two created human beings, but rather between the creation and the creator. And the implications of sin when we refuse to honor God is separation from him, both personally but also legally. Justice has to be fulfilled. God could not be good and not address evil and injustice in the world. The question becomes, how does God address evil without destroying us? Because if I admit that I have not glorified God and disobeyed Him, then evil is not just something I do. Evil is something that's inside of me, because, see, my heart doesn't seek to honor Him, but rather to honor myself with what He has given. Well, see, this is where substitution comes in, that Christ, as it says in verse 3, He He died for our sin, meaning that Christ Christ took our place. You know, if you go back to that story of your friend, as much as you may want to, you'd love to stand in that court. Maybe this is your desire because you love that person so much and say, hey, I'll take her penalty on myself. A judge's going to look at you and say, it's not possible. It's not possible for you to stand in the place of another. But the reality is in our brokenness with God, the The brokenness is so great that likewise we cannot stand in that place. We cannot cannot cover the debt that we owe. And because Jesus is in the very nature of God, he was able in his infinite glory to cover the legal and the personal implications of our disobedience towards God. The glory of the gospel is that Jesus both died for sins, but he substituted himself for us. You know, Paul summarizes it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. He says, For our sake he made him, meaning Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become, and listen to these words, the righteousness of God. That he who knew no sin, Jesus was in every way perfect and without sin, 
God made him who knew no sin to become the penalty for sin for us so that you, we, might receive the righteousness of God. See, the righteousness of God is Jesus' relationship with God. That Jesus was in right standing personally, but he was also in right standing legally. And when we place our faith in him, what Jesus has becomes ours and what we had becomes his. That he died on the cross to become our substitution. Now, here's the beauty of that. I know a lot of people outside of the church find that um, terrible in some ways. But it's actually very humbling and very humanizing. You know why? Because when you receive the gospel, you can never look down on another human being in your life. When you receive the gospel, you can never look down on another race, another person because of socioeconomic status or because of morality and look at them and say, somehow I must be better. Now, why is that? Because the only way we have been saved is because of the death of Jesus. And the only reason we are moral is because he was willing to go to the cross for me. Which means my salvation is entirely of his work and his work alone. Which leads us to a real kind of humanity. Because the reality is, the ground is level at the cross. And so Paul, he was an incredibly religious guy. If anyone didn't need Jesus, it's Paul. Paul was moral. He was a success according to how you define success in his culture. He didn't need Jesus. So why did Paul, why did Paul respond to Jesus? Well, something had to have happened that convinced him that what God was saying through Jesus Christ was true. Because Paul says in Romans chapter 3 that no one seeks after God, no, not one. All have turned away. Together they have become worthless. You know, he's not describing us. He's describing himself. That Paul in his morality was lost. Paul in his religious duty was lost. You know why? Because see, all his morality and religious duty, it wasn't to the honor of God. He realized it was all to the honor of me that I was obeying God to get God in my debt so that I could get from God what I really wanted. See, that's the essence of sin. And it can look as prostitutes and drugs and all that kind of stuff, but you know what? It can also look real good as morality and religious duty and obedience because what Christ is after is a heart that loves God with all its heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the evidence is loving our neighbor as ourself. The story of the gospel is sin and substitution. But the story of the gospel is also a story of history and resurrection. It's not just a subjective experience. It's an objective and truthful reality. Because he says in verse 3, notice this, For I delivered to you that was of first importance. And notice Paul says, What I also have received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture. And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Now again, Paul's writing this just 20 years after these events have taken place. Most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James and the apostles. And last of all, he also appeared to me as one who is untimely born. What is the significance of the resurrection? 
you know, the significance of the resurrection is that we can be confident and assured that our sins, both past and future, have been addressed. That we can be confident. You know, the story of the resurrection really is our security that our sins have been dealt with. Now, why would I say that? Well, imagine your friend that embezzled from you had to go to jail, had to go to prison. She's away for a number of years, and how do you know when that sentence is complete? You'll know because she'll be back walking the streets. She'll be free. Well, see, that's the story of the resurrection. How do you know that Jesus, when he died, died for our sins and that penalty was paid because he rose again? He was walking the streets. The penalty was paid. We are now free from our past sins, meaning that God no longer sees you. Listen, according to what you did. This is the beauty. Even now, God only sees you according to what Jesus Christ has done, and therefore he calls you his chosen and precious people. Our past sins have been addressed. But beyond that, also our future sins. You know, the story of Christianity is not just the story of how do we get to heaven and get our ticket punched. Because the New Testament talks about heaven in a much grander and I think richer way than we really fully understand, that one day we will have a new resurrected body. And God's not going to come down and just destroy the Death Star. Rather, he is going to create a new heavens and a new earth, that all the things that sin has broken will one day come untrue. It's actually Samwise Gamgee. Because J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote the book, The Lord of the Rings, the series, The Hobbit, he also wrote a great article you can look up, and it's called On Fairy Tales. And in it, he describes why do we love those fairy tales? I mean, we're a very sophisticated, scientific people, right? We love ration and reason. And yet today, we can't get enough of fairy tales. We can't get enough of the movies and the stories, the epic adventures, the bizarre tales. And he begins to ask the question, what is it about those stories that captivate us so much? And he says, for example, there's a number of things. One, we love the idea of stepping ourselves outside of time, to live in another place in another time. Secondly, he says, we all long that one day we could escape the reality of death. Thirdly, We long for a true love, a love that will never leave us and never forsake us. Fourth, he says, we're fascinated with the idea of communicating with non-human beings. And lastly, he says, we all have this desire to see what is wrong and what is unjust one day addressed. You know, we love those stories so much because they touch on some of those elements. And see, what J.R.R. Tolkien says is at the heart of all fairy tales is the gospel story. Because if the story of the gospel is true, then all of those realities are also true. All of the longings of the human heart that one day we could live and escape the clock, escape time and live in a place that is different than our own. That one day we will know a love that will not give up on us and we could, a love that we could not lose. One day we will spend time talking with non-human beings that are not extraterrestrials. And one day we will find that all the things that sin has broken will become untrue, that one day 
all the pain and the heartache of life will be addressed. See, in the story of the gospel, not only are we secured that our past sin has been addressed, but rather our future sin is addressed. And at the heart of the gospel is the heart of what human beings long for. The heart of a God that truly knows us, knows all our weaknesses, and yes, loves us. See, the story of the resurrection, the history event of the resurrection, is the, is the point on which we base our faith. Because I don't know if you notice, he says that Jesus appeared not just to me and James, but he appeared to more than 500. You know, why would he mention that? You know, if you've ever read a technical book or gone through maybe a nonfiction book, you find at the bottom there are all these footnotes, right? And those footnotes are there to say, hey, here's the evidence that what I'm saying is true. Now, Paul, writing just 20 years after the resurrection, is saying, if you do not believe what I'm saying, there are 500 people, at least, who have seen Jesus rise from the dead. Just go ask them yourself. But the story of the resurrection is not just a subjective reality that we believe. It's an objective historical reality that transformed someone like Paul who had no reason to believe in Jesus into a man who was willing to die for Jesus. Because the story of the gospel is the story of history. It's the story of the resurrection. But finally, and lastly, it's the story of transformative grace. You know, at the end of this passage, basically what Paul does is gives his own story. And he talks about himself as one who is untimely born because he was one who persecuted the church. God had no reason to rescue him because he persecuted the very people that God had rescued. And so he says in verse 8, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me, and I am the least of the apostles. I am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But listen to the way he describes himself. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Hey, I'm not proud of what I did. But notice what he's saying. It doesn't define me. Now, now Paul didn't just get into adultery. He didn't just steal. He, he murdered. And yet he's saying, I, I can share that without guilt or shame because Christ has covered my debt. And he goes on to say, and his grace towards me was not in vain. My life changed. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. And notice he says, it's not I. I didn't work harder. It's, I worked hard because grace. Three times he says, it's grace. It's grace. It's grace. The reason God accepts us is, is grace. For by grace you've been saved. How? Through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God so that none of us can boast. One of my favorite authors, a man by the name of John Bunyan, wrote a great story, a good one to read with your kids, called The Pilgrim's Progress. But he also wrote his own autobiography, and he entitled it, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. You know, John Bunyan was a religious man, and yet he did not find in the Bible comfort. He found the Bible very, very oppressive because he saw all these things that he needed to do. But see, then he understood that the Bible is not simply in the gospel and Christianity. is not about what we do. It's about what Jesus has done. And he described his moment of encountering Jesus this way. He said, one day I was passing through a field and suddenly thought of a sentence. I thought, your righteousness is now in heaven. And he goes on to explain what that means. 
He says, with the eyes of faith, I saw Jesus Christ seated at the right hand of God. And suddenly I realized, there is my righteousness. There is my righteousness. God could not say, where is your righteousness, John? For it was always right in front of him. You know, my good frame of heart could not make my righteousness better, nor my bad frame of heart make my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Jesus. And he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now my chains fell off, and I felt delivered from slavery to guilt and fear. I saw that all those weak character qualities in my heart were like the pennies a rich man carries in his pocket when his gold is safe in a trunk at home. What's he saying? saying, I didn't change my life. I didn't change my life. All I did was to believe, to recognize I'm covered in the righteousness of Christ. The good news of the gospel is we can't save ourselves. And how about you? But I've tried in my life to run to a lot of things for salvation. Maybe as a young man, it was pleasure and comfort. As getting older, maybe it's success and accomplishment. We run to these things, but over time, we find that they just do not suffice. What we're running to is righteousness. We're looking in life for something to say, I'm okay. To cover all the mistakes that we made, the, the guilt of our past, the shame. See, the story of the gospel is, this is what Christ has done. He's covered it. All we have to do is to receive. All we have to do is say, Father, accept me on the basis of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. I know that I've dishonored you. But come into my life. Fill me with the Holy Spirit and enable me to now know you. That's it. The only thing that keeps us from God is pride. It's refusable to admit that we need him. I don't know where you are today. Maybe this message is just an encouragement and a reminder, but it's important for us to know that what the story of Christianity is about is not, listen, it's not about you. It's not about what you need to do. It's first and foremost about what Jesus has done. And when he comes into your life, you start to do new things. Don't worry about the new things. Focus on the new life. Focus on who Jesus is. And when he is the center, he will make the changes happen because it's his power at work within you, not your power to change life. Hey, it's good to see you here this morning. Let me pray for us. Father, you tell us the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. And yet belief, Lord, you tell us, comes by grace. It comes by hearing the gospel that Christ died for our sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous myself, so that I might be brought to the Father. And Lord, you invite us not to, to climb the ladder, but rather just to say, Lord, would, would you show us that the gospel is true? Would you receive us on the basis of Jesus Christ and the basis of Jesus alone? Forgive us of our sins and fill us with the Holy Spirit so that we might know you. And Father, would we celebrate that we don't have to change our life. We look to the one who has changed life and we allow your life to flow through us. Father, bless us and guide us. Thank you for this celebration, the family and the desserts and all the things that follow. Thank you for this day in Jesus' name. Amen.